you have to have that kind of intent that you want to have, you know, you want to help people. You want to have a public purpose. I mean, legally, you have to have some kind of public purpose to really throw in with us. And I think it really shows the commitment of, of our allies, you know, that, you know, because this is a, a huge endeavor for us. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and joining me today is a very special co-host, Terrence Jackson. Hello, everybody. How's it going? I'm Terrence. You're no stranger to the podcast. I've had you on a couple of webinars in the past, and uh, all of it has been part of some podcast episodes that have come out, but you and I also used to work together. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> I want you to give a little bit of background on your background and what you're doing now. And just for our audience, I want to go ahead and just kind of set this up a little bit. Mm-hmm. February is obviously Black History Month. Yep. And the shop talk that we did this month, just a couple of weeks ago, we actually had a focus on Black History Month, both with wanting to have a little bit of a focus on HBCU and then also talk about. DEI, and we had a fantastic panel for DEI. So if you haven't seen that, go back to mm-hmm. you can go to our YouTube channel for Student Housing Insight and look at the replay there. Especially if you're on a, a DEI board or anything like that for your company, that's a must watch. But the focus that we had on HBCUs was really about an organization that I recently found. I was watching something on NBC and they started talking about student housing and HBCUs. So, of course, I just perked up and mm-hmm. ended up reaching out to that company. It's called Student Housing of America, Inc. It's a nonprofit, 501c3. Ended up having them on Shop Talk to kind of give a brief overview. And then a little bit later, I sat down with, with Sam Wiggins, who's their chairman, and two other folks from their board to just talk about their background and and how they got started this and what their mission was. And so we're going to play that interview today, but I wanted to bring you on specifically because, you know, you and I met when um, you were first brought on as, you know, resident advisor for a resident director, I should say, for a property that my company at that time was managing at North Carolina A&T. And Mm -hmm. if you're out there and you don't know about the Aggies, (laughs) (laughs) Aggie pride. Aggie pride. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's where the the whole sit-ins during the civil rights movement originated. And and it's just a lot of legacy, you know, with that university. I'm very proud of the UNC system and how Mm -hmm. they, and we talk about this in my interview with, with Sam and, and his group that you go to some states and the public HBCUs, do not look anything like the flagship universities. Correct. But A&T, I mean, the time, I mean, you spent a lot more time there than I did, but Mm -hmm. the grounds of the university, if you've never been to an NC State or a UNC Asheville and you came into Greensboro and you didn't look at the sign when you came onto campus at A&T, you would think it was any one of those universities, right? Absolutely. Until you start seeing some of the statues and then it would become very obvious that you're, you know, you're on HBCU, but the facilities were great. They just, they've poured a bunch of money into the buildings and it was just a fantastic experience. And then also mentioned in in that interview about 
the experience that I had at Grambling with that same company. And we were servicing both LaTeX and Grambling, you mm-hmm. know, in that market. And there was a big difference. I mean, Very there's only difference. <laughs> two or three miles in between those campuses mm-hmm. and it is night and day. And I'm pretty sure we literally went over railroad tracks between the two. It was just amazing. And what was fantastic about it, because I went on that campus for the first time and I kept thinking, okay, this is probably going to be the most apathetic administration that that I've seen because mm-hmm. this place just isn't being taken care of. Yep. And that's not true. The landscape and everything was being maintained. There was just nothing new that was going into it. The buildings still looked like they were, you know, from the sixties. And but we walked in and spoke with the administration and they were just as excited and tuned in and proud as you know the administration at, at A&T. And that's when it kind of clicked with me mm-hmm. about HBCUs and what the real mission is behind them and, and why folks are so passionate about it and why they're so important to, to really our society and certainly our, our culture here in the U.S. And so I, it's always been a passion of mine since that experience. And what's really kind of cool uh, you know, over the past three or four years between one of the, I think it was the CARES Act, or maybe it was one of the other bills right around that time, there was a lot of forgiveness given to the loans that those universities had, which, you know, really freed up their balance sheet. Yep. And then also just incentives, you know, for students to go to those universities. And so they've had some huge enrollment growth. And now there's a real, real need for off-campus housing because all these universities now that they've got the financial wherewithal, they want to pour it into the classrooms and their research facilities and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So, you know, and what I'm a little disappointed at right now is we're not really seeing the developers go into to HBCUs. And I, and I understand why, because you and I were talking beforehand. I'm mm-hmm. currently advising someone who has a development project at HBCU. And once they got everything closed interest rates are going through the roof mm-hmm. and financially just doesn't make sense, you know, at this point. So I know that's playing a lot into it as well, but anyway, enough about that. I now want to focus on <laughs> on you and your experience and just go ahead and kind of introduce yourself and, and give your background. So like Wes mentioned, I'm Terrence Jackson. I actually started out at a PWI, a PWI standing for predominantly white institution, HBCU standing for historically black college and university. And so there are two distinct like worlds between like the two levels of higher education. And so coming from a PWI background and then transitioning to Greensboro and where the property was located, we were located directly across from the HBCU, which in that particular market, there were two, well, actually three or four colleges in the area, but where the property was located, most of the students, because of the position and the location of the property, the majority of our residents came from North Carolina A&T. And so I was a little nervous at first, Wes, because I did not have that experience. And my and dad... You, you graduated from Francis Marion, right? Yep, yep, I did. South I Carolina. did. And, you know, my dad graduated from an HBCU. My mom graduated from a PWI. But I personally did not go to an HBCU. And those that attend an HBCU versus people that graduate from a PWI, 
there are different perspectives on, you know, like being a black man as myself, coming into an HBCU culture, knowing that I did not go to an HBCU, there was a lot of hesitation on my part because there are talks and conversations about, okay, how should we treat you? Do you understand us as a culture, as a people? And I think that kind of plays into some of the other things that you were mentioning in the intro about there's like a trust factor, but there's an area of neglect as well. Because as you came onto the campus of Grambling, I feel as if they were excited because, oh, finally somebody came to us and wanting to partner and wanting to see the value in providing quality housing for students. And when you look at where HBCUs are located, they're usually in a poverty-stricken neighborhood. There's food deserts all around. Or out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And as you mentioned, developers, um, owners, investors, they're a little hesitant into going into those particular markets where there are um, HBCUs. And I think that kind of puts those students that attend HBCUs at an extreme disadvantage. And partnering with North Carolina ANT, it was one of the best life-changing all my things that I could have ever experienced. And oh, some of the best relationships. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The way that we reached out, the way that we would partner with our programming, the way that we set up our residence life, and just being able to have employees and team members and, you know, like corporate personnel who understood that this particular community might be a little different. And the way that sometimes you may have to package or the way that you have to structure certain um, like levels of process like for student housing might be just a little bit different because the challenges are different. The needs are different. The demographic of your residents are different. So the way that you market, the way that you like may structure or issue out um, like a violation notice or just understanding who your residents are, there was a huge learning curve for me and I think for all of us, but I think that we did a really good job of reaching out and then opening our minds and our understanding to, okay, teach us and show us like how we can better the lives of the students that attend North Carolina ENT, improving their lifestyle inside of their unit, understanding what they need, making sure that safety was there, making sure that programming was there. I think just ensuring that there was a balance in the lifestyle of, you know, when you go to like maybe like a class A property, making sure that they're all treated fairly, just like in fair housing, like we train on it all the time, but just making sure that a resident at an HBCU versus a resident at a PWI, they're still being looked at as a tenant, as a resident, and they deserve to have the same service, the same level of amenities, just whatever you would put at a PWI institution or a property in that area, you would also do the same for that property that is in that HBCU community as well. And not saying that you want to offer less because you feel as if you can offer less. And so the way that we would meet with the university administration, having weekly meetings, being able to make donations to uh, some of the student organizations, allowing the student organizations to use the clubhouse, Again, it was like one of the best experiences that I've had. In yeah, this, it's it's yeah. so kind of amazing to hear you say kind of how intimidated you were when yeah. you, were <laughs> you surprised me. I mean, because mm-hmm. I felt like some of the resident programming that you came up with, especially that first year that you were there, I thought mm-hmm. 
that first year. I remember back then you had the dread. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was, it was uh, when you came into a room, you just literally lit it up. And uh, that definitely was, I, I remember, I remember specifically mm-hmm. some of the folks at some of the administration at the university, just, you know, talking about how excited they were that you were there and the effort and, and passion that you mm-hmm. were putting to it. So, Again, thank you for that, because I think that went a long ways in what we were trying to do there. Well, tell me a little bit. I mean, now that how many years have you been in the business now? I was actually counting the other day. I think I'm year 13 or 14. Yeah. When you have to start using your toes. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Tell me, I mean, that was your first experience Mm -hmm. in student housing. How has that compared to what you're doing now right now you're with campus life and style and mm-hmm. traveling and doing a lot of stuff with them from an operation standpoint, but you've been with some other companies. You've mm-hmm. been at some flagship universities. Mm-hmm. How is that compared to your time at, at A&T? It is very different when you talk about how the student affairs on my department and the academic departments are structured at a PWI versus an HBCU. Some of the processes are very different. The structures, the levels, even sometimes the communication flow is a little different. Of course, as we know, the financial resources are definitely different. And, you know, PWIs can offer just a little bit more than what HBCUs are able to offer. And so working in markets where there are um, like PWI flagships versus where there is a um, HBCU flagship like North Carolina A&T, the way that you would approach a dean of students might be a little different or the way that you would approach the housing director or even finding marketing opportunities on campus are totally different. There are different rules that each campus may have. And so what it boils down to is even the students, the residents are definitely different. The programming, in my opinion, has to be different. Programming that you think works and did work for a PWI market doesn't necessarily, you know, transition well into where you have a majority HBCU students. There are different needs. I want to stop you right there Mm because I want to ask you this question too. Mm -hmm. You know, you're heavily involved with the marketing of these assets Mm -hmm. from a digital marketing standpoint at an HBCU, where do you feel like you get the most bang for your buck social media or Google clicks or uh, any, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but Mm -hmm. that's one thing I've, and and I'm at a doing some work right now that it's not an HBCU, but it is 60% minorities, Mm -hmm. 70% minorities. Mm -hmm. And there's only four properties in that market and none of us spend any money on Google clicks because we know it's, it's worthless. Mm -hmm. These folks make their decisions based off of their friends and how much they can trust you. Absolutely. Um, Just kind of wondering from your standpoint, you know, from a digital marketing standpoint, if there was one place you had to put the money, would you kind of agree with that assessment or do you think it's... I think the money needs to be put into uh, the actual team and the employees like who are on site. Because as you mentioned, it's about the referral. It's about the word of mouth. It's also about the trust factor. That was the biggest thing that helped us in Greensboro and with North Carolina A&T. Because through the years, students who graduated, who then had kids 
And then, you know, their kids ended up going to North Carolina A&T because that community was considered to be like a staple. Um, honestly, it's been there for a long time. People in that community just knew, hey, this is where you need to go. If you're going to North Carolina A&T, this should be your first stop because of either the price, the location, and just that trust factor. Once parents and students and their friends can trust that this is a stable place to live and that they're going to be treated fairly and that you're going to have a good experience. They're going to tell their friends and their friends are going to tell their friends. And that's how the word begins to spread that way. And just making sure that you have the right team that's in place that can help spread that message and that can build that trust and build that rapport. I'm um, like with the community, I think is where those dollars should be spent when we're talking about a property that may be with a PWI versus a property with an HBCU. That is a very important um, aspect when it comes to marketing. It just rolls over and transitions more into the referral side. And so you can do the social media because that helps because, you know, people will look you up on social media, but they're going to um, text, call, and they're going to ask around first without ever looking at your social media page or your website. You know, if I have a friend they will text me and say, hey, like, I know you're in student housing. Like, what do you think about this? They've never been on the website. They've never been on the social media, but they trust my word because they know what I do. And that's enough for them to go straight to the property to check the property out. And then from there, like I may like give the property a heads up if I um, might happen to have worked with that particular person in years past and just said, you know, like, hey, like I have a cousin um, like who's going there in the fall. Can you set up a tour? I'm like with them and they'll be here at this time, you know, and just kind of follow the process from that point. But that trust factor is very important. And that that referral, it has to be strong enough that people can believe that, okay, you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I started that question off with, hey, what's what's kind of been some of the differences? And I think what I think what I really wanted to get down to and as we started talking about that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure there's someone in our audience that is listening to this that has never worked at an HBCU. And, you know, there's a, an opportunity for them mm-hmm. to work at an HBCU or in a HBCU market. And, you know, I kind of want to drill in on some differences that maybe you can prepare them for. And one of the things that come to mind pretty quickly, just from what I remember of, of things that, you know, we were doing at Greensboro and Ruston, it was financial aid. Yes. It, it, it was... <laughs> Man, when we took that property over in Greensboro, the delinquency was just yes. <laughs> and we got to the point that you know I exited from that company. Mm-hmm. You guys had some of the best delinquency in the you know in the entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what was involved with that because I, I don't think that's just a Greensboro or a Rustin thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that's HBCU still get a lot of first generation college students. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as we talk about the legacies and, and that type of thing, there's still a lot of first generation college students. So they're coming from, you know, a lower income family mm-hmm. and they're going to be dependent on financial aid. And I think we've seen a lot of mistakes being made yes, <laughs> yes. who aren't used to, to getting financial aid. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think it goes to the foundation of relationships. And anybody that knows me knows that I am a big 
believer in, I mean, like I live this out every day is how I build my relationships are very important. Just our relationship through the years, you know, like not forgetting one another, checking in on one another. And so I adopted that I guess that personal belief and and use that to go on campus and to start building those relationships, even though I wasn't a direct employee of North Carolina ENT, not being afraid to go on campus, knowing that I have worked in that particular um, on-campus structure before. So the language of the process doesn't necessarily change. So I could use some of the same terms and and getting certain employees to know and understand that, oh, okay, he's almost like one of us, you know, Um, he's worked in this environment before. And so we began to develop a working relationship with the actual financial aid office to where if a resident or a student um, came to us and said that they wanted to um, work out a financial aid deferment plan. Then we would send that name to the financial aid department and they would, you know, like have with the student's permission, um, might be able to confirm what their financial aid package was. And even down to the date of when the disbursements um, would be coming out for the residents and for the students so that we could go ahead and forecast and project that, yes, our delinquency may start here. But by this date, this is when the disbursements will hit. And then by this date, this is how much we should be able to collect to be able to close that gap on our delinquency. But establishing that relationship in many relationships on campus with key departments definitely helped in that effort, delivering on um, like breakfast on the go items on um, like for the department heads, just remembering key dates, um, like allowing different departments and fraternities, sororities, and different athletic sports to have meetings in our conference room and in our clubhouse and just doing special events just for them. Building that relationship was the key factor in driving those results. And for anybody that is transitioning to a market where it's just an HBCU, making sure that how you approach and how you present yourself on campus is very important because those that work at an HBCU, they have a high level of pride. Either they graduated from the HBCU and now they're working there. And so their perspective is they're protecting the institution as a whole and they will sniff out any threat. And so they don't mean any harm by it, but they just want to know, okay, I hear you, I see you, but are you going to be consistent? Because what we don't want to see happen is you come in and kind of take advantage of our students. Because of the history of HBCUs, we know that HBCUs were founded and built on the understanding of providing an option for Black students who wanted to further their education, drive themselves into the career force. And so they don't want anything to come against the success of their students. And so they're very cautious in the beginning. But the way that you handle that is consistency and just being very genuine. And it does help if you graduated from an HBCU, even an um, arrival of that particular HBCU, because then, you know, you can kind of talk a little you know, street talk and banter back and forth, you know, uh, share a few laughs and that kind of helps lower down that guard a little bit more. But building that relationship is going to be very key. Yeah. Yeah. For folks that are out there that may be looking to underwrite a deal at HBCU, be be it an acquisition or be it a new development, what you were saying about, you know, kind of that rhythm with financial aid disbursements and everything else 
you got to underwrite it that way. You got to mm-hmm. plan for that negative cash flow, and mm-hmm. certainly in August because you got turn better. You know, throwing your expenses mm-hmm. through the ceiling, and then on top of that, you've got folks that are completely able to pay their rent. It's mm-hmm. just they need maybe up to six weeks in order to, to get that. And I think the industry does this kind of as a whole, regardless if it's at a HBCU or not. But I think we've gotten really good at understanding that if someone has to self-qualify through having financial aid, that there's an agreement that they pay for that semester mm-hmm. out when they get that disbursement. Yep. And that's a huge help. And, and it's and also financial literacy too, you know, 100%. and, you know, educating. And I forgot to mention that, you know, we would work with those individuals who were delinquent and we would open up conversation, you know, if they express that they're having a hard time finding a job using our own community connections and resources to send them to various places of employment to be hired, understanding I'm like when they get paid doing the math on paper for them and taking it step by step. As you mentioned earlier, first generation students, you know, and just the lack of generational wealth, sometimes you have to spend that extra time to break certain things down because that understanding is not there because it did not come from their parents. It did not come from their grandparents. They're the first of their kind to go on this venture to further their education. And so what do you do with a student who is getting a $10,000 refund check, you know, whether it be from a Pell Grant or whether it be from private loans? And they're looking at this big check of $10,000 that just hit their account. And they're like, whoa, okay, I've never seen $10,000 in my account man, I can go on a trip. I can buy this. I can, you know, like do this. I can do that. And then when they start thinking about, oh, those rent notices that start coming in, oh man. Okay. Well then what did you do with that disbursement? How much do you have left? Oh, um, I think I only have about 1500. Okay. How are you going to stretch that 1500 from August all the way to December when your rent needs to be paid every month. And so providing that strong education, taking that extra time and providing that financial literacy. And I think that we also partnered with a community resource that did some classes and, and what we did. Yeah. I know that the first time we did it, we actually used Dave Ramsey's Mm -hmm. uh, can't remember exactly what it's called, but specifically for, college students. Mm -hmm. And it was really good. And those that were on the delinquency, we saw that some of them, they came off of the delinquency and they were very, very grateful for having that level of education because for the first time, they had never been in a financial literacy class before. Just giving them that insight. Okay. All right. This is a budget. This is how I need to make my budget. I need to make sure that my bills are paid first and then everything else that comes after. This is money that I can use for food or I can play with or I can party with. And so readjusting those priorities in their finances definitely also helps. So being prepared to make sure that you can spend that extra time in providing that education. Compared to 13 years ago, do you think the students or coming out of high school with more or less financial literacy? I want to say they're not coming with a huge amount of financial literacy, only because I'm seeing when I'm traveling to different markets and different properties, I'm seeing that the parents, the guarantors, the co-signers are taking care of the rent payment on behalf of the student and that the student has no idea 
what is actually being paid every month or how much their electric bill back is actually going to be or what their water bill back is actually going to be. And even having conversations with parents who tell us, please do not tell them that I'm making this payment. And so my response to that is, well, then maybe those conversations should be had because when you think about raising the next generation and once they graduate from their four-year or five-year institution, they're going to be hit with a hard reality of, okay, if you don't pay your rent or you don't pay your mortgage, that means eviction. That means foreclosure. That means repossession of your vehicle. That means no internet, no Wi-Fi. Oh, you mean I have to buy my own washer and dryer? Oh, I have to pay a cable bill, my Wi-Fi bill. So gaining that knowledge for off-campus student housing, I believe that's the purpose that we serve is providing that knowledge, providing that experience to prepare the next generation for when they actually graduate. Because if we don't properly prepare, then I think our society as a whole, we're going to be in for a very rude awakening. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when we rolled that out and I was like, it's amazing that us as property managers are doing more than what the high school and public school systems were Mm -hmm. doing in regards to financial literacy. Now, I will say in the past three or four years, having conversations with CAs and things like that, as I've brought up, hey, why don't we do this financial literacy program, you know, as part of a, you know, resident programming or whatever. And I've actually been amazed at how many high school students did get that. Mm-hmm. They're from states that kind of rank higher on the list as far as education is concerned. That probably kind of goes hand in hand, I'm sure. But yeah, anyway. absolutely. Absolutely. As we're getting closer to getting into this interview, and I appreciate the time that you've given yeah. me. When you think about your time at A&T, mm-hmm. what's kind of the biggest takeaway, biggest memory that you could share? Probably some you can't share, but uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, which one should I pull out? <laughs> um, I mean, I just think like the people, honestly, you know, um, seeing an actual HBCU homecoming and for oh, North Carolina A&T, as they call it uh, for short, GHO, the greatest homecoming on earth. And being from South Carolina, we have several HBCUs and having South Carolina State in Orangeburg, not too far from where I'm from, I thought that South Carolina State's homecoming was like the best because, you know, we grew up going to South Carolina State homecoming or Benedict homecoming. And, you know, my dad graduated from Benedict. So going to their homecoming every year, like that was like our family thing. But then going to North Carolina A&T's homecoming. Literally, you're seeing people flying in, driving in. The city shuts down for an entire week. There are day parties. There are vendors. There are carnivals. There are tailgates. There are, I mean, there's so much happening in the city around homecoming. It's a huge moneymaker for the city, and it's a huge moneymaker for the university as well, having the number of alums that come back just to revisit and just to celebrate and just to remember. That was an experience in itself for the years that I was there. I even, people thought that I went there on my for a time because, you know, I just engrossed myself into the community. And um, a few of my church members, I remember they invited me to one of their tailgates. And, um, you know, I was like, wow, okay, so this is what it's like. And they would always joke around with me, like, you know, you've never seen anything like this before. And I'm like, you know what, you're right. You have it. And you know, <laughs> let me just tell you, because uh, it was it was certainly this way in Greensboro. And, and just to prepare anybody that mm-hmm. you know, may be going to work at an HBCU, if you haven't 
been a part of that. I don't know if it's like this at every homecoming, but you know, like you said, there's a lot of outside vendors and stuff that come in to mm-hmm. really kind of transform the city yep. into this big homecoming event. And you hear of crime and things like that that are associated mm-hmm. with it. And let me be the first person to tell you, it is not the alumni and the students and Correct. families that are coming in there mm-hmm. that's causing any of that. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't want it any more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. It is outside elements, you know, that's folks right. yeah. that are going there to prey on what's happening. Absolutely. And just be aware of that because it's not really associated with anything the university is mm-hmm. doing. It's it's really just outside elements. But you know what? I think planning is key. I think one of our successes and the big takeaway in having that HBCU homecoming experience is that we plan for this months in advance down to having those meetings of strategy, reaching out to security, sending proper notifications to the residents, to the parents, doing what we could to also make the experience enjoyable from a resident perspective. We didn't want to stifle their fun, but we also wanted to provide the right education and we wanted to make sure that there were proper plans in place. And it's not something that you can create in a week. If you're trying to plan in advance as far as like a week before homecoming, you're too late. You're way too late. Preparing for that homecoming is <laughs> preparing for turn. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what was kind of crazy is, you know, we would get through turn and we were immediately into mm-hmm. planning for homecoming yep. because you got to meet with the sheriff's department. You got to yep. meet with the police department. You got to mm-hmm. meet with the university. You got to mm-hmm. meet with some of the other organizations from campus. And then there's just all the communication with the residents mm-hmm. and, you know, letting them know what will and will not be tolerated because, mm-hmm. I don't have to amp up some of the rules, absolutely regulations during that time, especially when it comes like to parking and things like that for more than anything, just their own safety. And yeah, man, that was <laughs> and every year we just put, you know, more and more money into it, but it was, it was got worth a lot it. of, yeah, we got a lot of comments from the university about how much better that was compared mm-hmm. to, to years past yep. um, in previous ownership. So I think that's huge. Well, hey, let's get over to to this interview and, and I appreciate all the time. Anything specific, because you've been able to listen to this interview beforehand, anything that stood out that you want to make sure our audience pays attention to? I would say like just really listen into how they structured their model and how they were actually founded and created looking at the needs of the students of an HBCU and just being able to have a nonprofit that wants to give back to the HBCU student and not only providing a quality level of life off campus, but also down to how they have scholarships and other funds for financial literacy, being able to help out on no interest loans if they need to get food or if they fall on hard times, being able to really understand the background of the HBCU student and, you know, how they're actually setting that up and how they're being successful with it. I mean, hands down, I thought that I've never seen a management company or a nonprofit organization solely focused on the HBCU institution and the HBCU student. Because I feel as if, you know, there are people that are afraid of the HBCU institution. And so having a nonprofit that identifies personally with that HBCU institution, 
seeing how they are able to provide those housing services, I was honestly blown away. I had watched the same interview and read the article, but I just didn't think to like go on their website and to read more about how they were founded. And I was just like, wow, they actually do a lot. And this is what we need more of. And I think other HBCUs, I think they wish that they could have other nonprofits, um, like just like, you know, Student Housing of America. I wish that they were able to spread to more of the HBCUs because I really feel like they need it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge need there and there's a great opportunity right now. And so I hope some folks that are out there listening to this will, you know, it'll inspire them to take a look into those markets and Mm -hmm. and see where they can help out. Terrence, it's been great. Let's get to this interview. And if you could stick around, we'll just have a couple of comments for the outro. Yep. Sounds good. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Wes. Happy to be here. Uh, Let me introduce myself. My name is Sam Wiggins, and I'm chairman of Student House of America, Inc. Well, great. We've got a couple other people joining you today as well. We'll talk to them in just a second. But Samuel, just to give everybody kind of some context, I reached out to you after seeing something on NBC recently about... uh, what you guys are doing specifically focusing on student housing at HBCUs. And so we were obviously planning some things with our, with our shop talk webinar for black history month. And I was like, okay, I got to get these guys on and reached out to you and you've kind of given me the whole story. I want to make sure we talk about that, but it tells a little bit about the two other gentlemen joining us today. Well, you know, as I said, they're my colleagues with Student Housing of America, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Thanks a lot, Sam. Wes, thank you for having us on today. Happy to be here. Uh, My name is Sean Wiggins, and yes, uh, Sam is my brother, and I serve as president of the Student Housing of America, Inc. I'm Chris Chambers. I'm general counsel to the group, and my background has been in corporate governance, nonprofits, and and in uh, bond work, too, which is analogous to kind of what we're doing, if you think about it. So it's uh, municipal bond work. So that's what I try to bring to the table because this is an exciting new kind of a, of, of a venture. Well, great. Well, Samuel, I, you know, you've told me the story a couple of times uh, and you tell it pretty well. So I'll just start with you. If you want to kind of go through the story of Student Housing of America and how you guys have kind of intersected with it. As you know, Sean and I are brothers, and we've known Chris for, what, over 20 years, 30 years, not given our age. But um, we work together in the private sector. We've done social-oriented projects together as well. But Student House America came to us around 2019. It is a nonprofit tied to Southern University in Baton Rouge. And um, it had taken control of a distressed property, but that property went further underwater. And then we were invited to come in and help. And we're graduates. Sean and I are graduates of Southern University. So we're happy to, to go back, work with the nonprofit and try to turn things around for our alma mater. It worked out so well that with our corporate partner, Emet Capital Management, we were able to bring that property around, do renovations and get a house full of uh, Southern University College students. And we're able to form a stronger partnership so much so that we took over the nonprofit and we've been running it ever since. In my background, 
you probably should know is I'm former federal government. I used to be a, a federal agent, criminal investigator. Then I became an SES, senior executive service, before I left the federal government and opened up a company with my brother, Sean, and with Chris. So we, we kind of, when one of us gets involved, we kind of all get involved. We're a package deal. Well, fantastic. Well, tell me a little bit. I want to go back just a little bit and talk about Southern University. You guys both went to school there. You know, I think it's good just to to hear from alumni of HBCUs and, and kind of get some background on how you guys feel about what's happened with HBCUs over the past two, three decades and, and kind of where you see that going. You know, the, the interesting thing about HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, is, you know, it offers students of color an opportunity to attend a school where you don't have all of the other challenges that come with being a person of color. You actually go there and guess what? You just focus on school. Socially, you're integrated, you know, immediately. And that's something that a lot of people really don't realize. Now, going back in the history of HBCUs, they are created because of segregation. You know, black students could not go to white colleges, but there's a need for secondary education. So the country created from the Land Act, Historical Land Act, HBCUs. So we went to Southern University and listen, an incredible experience, a lot of challenges. And I think related to Student Housing of America, Sam and I and Chris are talking about this. We, you know, once Sam and I were in one of our engineering class, well, both engineers, we had a, a friend of ours who, you know, he looked really upset and, you know, joking around, we're thinking didn't sleep well. You know, I said to him, I said, hey, you know, the midterm's not until like a month from here, you know, now. And, you know, he didn't laugh. So obviously it was something serious. So, you know, sort of leaned in and said, hey, is everything all right? Um, and our friend told us, uh, no, it's not actually. I'm about to be evicted. And at that time, that's a big deal. You're in college. You're away from your family. You're about to be kicked out of your housing. So we're all friends and college students do this all the time. I'm sure we say, hey, look, we got a couch for you. If you don't mind that, come on in. Came in, you know, stayed with us for a while until he found another place. Everything was fine. Um, years later, I ran into him. I think it was in New York. And we went out. We were drinking. And, you know, he, he you know, we talked about all the memories and everything. And, and he said something that really struck me. It really, I just didn't expect it. But he said, you know, when you and Sam helped me out that time, you have no idea how important that was for me. Because without that housing, I was really, I was going into a depression. So that relates directly here because you, one, you don't know a person's condition. And two, the last thing or one of the last things that students need to be worried about while in any college is, do I have a place to live? Bottom line. So we're really happy to be working with historically black colleges and universities and others as well, too, simply because it's so important. And and there's a direct tie to us specifically. So, um, you know, I get Sam and, and Chris's thoughts on that as well, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually add to that. And I mentioned this before. Every time I talk about our organization, about HBCUs, I like to focus on the fact that over the last decade about enrollment at HBCUs have uh, skyrocketed due to social conditions, just due to advancement of HBCUs and what they offer, uh, students have flocked to HBCUs. However, their infrastructure has not matched the progress of their enrollment. And uh, it's historical. It's inequities in funding, inequities and resources that provides for an inadequacy in student housing. As the story Sean told us, when we were back in college ourselves, we saw it. We lived it. 
now that we're outside of that, we're able to look back on things. We see it, it's a, it's a nationwide problem. And so we took it upon ourselves to address that problem the only way we can by giving back and by doing things to provide for student housing and not just student housing, but affordable student housing. And also to kind of put programs in there to help counter mental health issues, to help counter like food insecurity or security in general. So it just, it seemed to be a natural fit. Well, I mean, you know, this is a general trend. I mean, you, you have giant state universities that still have a lot of deferred maintenance. You have state legislatures that, for whatever reason, either a lack of money or for philosophical reasons, will not fund these things to the extent that they should, unless we're talking about the football team in the stadium. Very often the football coach is the highest paid public employee in the state. And, you know, when you have a situation like that, you're going to have dorms and facilities that might not catch up with the demand, as Sam and and Sean were saying. You take that scale and you put it into an HBCU and you have a a problem. You have a real problem with student facilities and and dorms and things like that. There are some of the more successful HBCUs like um, Hampton and Howard uh, needed public money, you know, to to really expand their student facilities and, and these kind of partnerships. So, it, you know, it's a common problem, but hopefully we're addressing it at this level with, you know, creative means. I mean, this is, this is a very new kind of a deal in terms of corporately, legally, in terms of nonprofits. And I think hopefully, I got to tell you, maybe we, ironically, maybe we will be the model for bigger universities, predominantly majority universities can see what we're doing on this level and say, wow, you know, look at what, how they helped HBCUs. You know, yeah. because we've got $50 million in deferred maintenance, you know, and we can't do these dorms over again. And they're, and, and they're starting to fall apart. So, you know, it's, it's exciting for me to be a part of that. Hey, let me give a little bit of background on, uh, you know, my involvement with HBCUs because I've got two stories that are very different. And maybe you guys have some insight into it since one of those is in Louisiana. But here in I'm in South Carolina, but just up the road in, in Greensboro, we've got North Carolina A&T. Of course, a lot of historical relevance there with the sit-ins and civil rights movement and a lot of pride, a lot of history there. And I guess I can say that about every HBCU, honestly, but, but there is a lot with the Aggies for sure. And to go on that campus, like it's really not any different from any of the other flagship campuses within the UNC system. And I mean, it's a beautiful campus. Buildings are well-maintained. The student housing that's around the perimeter, it's a little bit of a rough neighborhood, but and, and it's had some issues. But for the most part, you wouldn't go through that campus and realize that it was, I mean, if you didn't come through the front entrance, but if you or had your eyes closed while going to the front entrance, you wouldn't have much of a different feeling if you'd gone on to the campus of NC State or uh, UNC Asheville or something like that. Then on the other side of it, I've been involved with Grambling University and everybody knows the story what Was it four or five years ago when the football team basically walked off the field because protest of, of their facilities and the facilities there, talking about that deferred maintenance, was just at a completely different level from any other university I've, re- I've really worked with. 
you would think that would go into apathy with the, you know, with the staff or something like that. I didn't, with the administration, I didn't see that at all. They were just as plugged in and excited about things as, as the administration at, at A&T. But, you know, is that differences with state legislature? What, what What's, and again, you guys may not even know the answer to that. Just kind of wondering if, if you've got a background that could help explain that. I'll jump in on that one. Um, it just so happens that our family is from North Louisiana, so we know a lot about Louisiana. We're pretty plugged in politically as well, too. You know, Wes, not to sugarcoat it, but there are challenges for HBCUs in Louisiana. One, writ large, education is not where it should be within Louisiana. Like It ranks you know, among the bottom of, of most places when it comes to education. If you really you know, superimpose that onto colleges and universities. I think Chris sort of tapped on it. If you've got, you know, class A football team or um, basketball team, you're not going to really have those problems. But if you get out of that, then you are going to be challenged. And challenges exist even more with black colleges and universities, bottom line. There are some challenges when it comes to race in Louisiana. And that's no secret, but that does really impact the historically black colleges and universities. Now, what I will say also is that, you know, there is an onus on the leadership as well, too, to make sure, you know, those funds are being used properly. And that's with any organization. You know, sometimes you have people, you have an abuse of funds. So there's a bit of challenge on both sides. But I think the important thing here is that we're talking about the problem, we're putting a spotlight on it, and hopefully that will raise the attention to, one, get more federal funds to these organizations, you know, get the leadership to really double down on housing and, and other challenges as well, too. But Louisiana is a special case, unfortunately. It's it's better than what it's been, but it's not where it should be, frankly. Oh, I simply got to say, uh, to add to that ad, it's a socioeconomic problem. I keep saying it's historical because There's no HBCU that without the proper funding, without the proper infrastructure, the outside of the campus, the surrounding area will look just like the inside of the campus. Beautiful. I think the HBCUs do a great job of dealing with the resource they have. And as you mentioned, I've not met one person, any administration of any HBCU that we've been on campus of who hasn't been dedicated or excited or eager to do what they can for their students. I think it's just a matter of uh, dealing with the cards that you've been dealt. And it's also a matter of trying to improve your situation by degrees. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why we're here. We see the issues that's bigger than HBCU. We're trying to do our part to level the playing field. What was amazing about Grambling is the number of legacy students that were there, you know, who it was now, you know, second, third generation, and how many of them were from outside of the state. And so to your point, I think that's one of those things where after graduation, they end up, you know, moving, but they, they want their children to go back there right. to have the same experience that they had. And I think that's that's pretty special. Sean, I think um, we, we talked about the story of, of how you guys became involved with Student Housing of America and have move things forward with your first project, but kind of give us an outline of what you guys are focused on from a mission standpoint and what really makes up Student Housing of America. 
you know, job one for us, Wes, is really affordable housing for these students. And again, if we talk to about the hierarchy of needs, we got to really focus on that. What I will say is that across what we've been working on, our, you know, let's talk about our mission. Our mission really is to make sure we look at the whole student. We don't look at just the housing. We also look at, you know, as Sam mentioned earlier, we look at food insecurity. We look at mental health. We look at safety as well, too. So we're, we're really trying to create an ecosystem where we actually do everything we can to help students succeed while they're in college. And that translates into them succeeding in life. You know, core values are really important. Simply, I think core values are, you know, our say do gap is zero. And I think that's for anyone's core values. If you're saying you are something, you are somebody, you want to be that. And, and really, I would say this of, you know, both my colleagues, Chris and Sam, these guys are two of the, you know, the most professional people I know. They're very compassionate. They're collaborative. They've got a lot of integrity. They're sustainable in how they operate as well, too. We're always looking at, you know, what's best uh, that's going to make things better. So, well, who we are, we definitely want that to translate into what we do at SHA. Sam talked a little bit about how we started out. We really took over in 2019. And what we've always been really focused on is what can we do better? What else? What else? What else? We're really trying to make sure that we're creating an environment where a student really technically should want for nothing. So the only thing they really have to focus on is, hey, I've got to get that next A. I've got to make up for that test I missed or my graduation is coming up or what is it that's going to get them that degree so they can move on into the workforce or continue on with their education? Talk a little bit about some of these other programs. She talks about helping with food insecurity, and I'm amazed at how that, not just at HBCUs, but just you know across the country, we're seeing that more and more. Tell us a little bit about that programming. Is that somebody that you partner with? Is that something that you guys have developed? And not just that program, but some of the other programming that, that you referred to earlier. So let's start with uh, the programming that we do for our student residents. When they become part of our property, when they become our tenants, we offer a safety net. We offer rent protection. If they can't pay their rent, we have mechanisms in place where they can get interest-free loans that they can meet their rent, three months worth of rent. We also have emergency funding where if it goes beyond that, we can work it out on a case-by-case basis. If they have financial issues beyond rent, like all students do, especially students of financial aid, we've been there, we've seen it. Uh, we have emergency funds they can use to meet their needs temporarily. And beyond that, we also have educational programs. We have programs that are designed to for mental health and wellness, security awareness to keep students safe, We have programs for financial management, financial literacy and credit management so that they can work on building positive credit while back in school. They won't get that credit card in the mail like, hey, great, like I did back in college and spend it in one day and they have it haunt you for a few years (laughs) after you graduate. And we have programs that are designed to address other issues that affect students, impact students like food insecurity. Now, right now, we have uh, partnerships for the rent aspect and emergency funds, but other things like the seminars, webinars, and informational programs we offer students, we do that ourselves. We get subject matter experts to come in and we work with them to work with our student residents. And once we do that, we offer it 
beyond our property, we offer it to the school as well. They can take advantage of anything we have to offer at our properties. As far as food insecurity, we're doing that internally. We love to find an ally, a partner who can help us with that. So we're always on the lookout. But right now, you know, we're doing things with a close set of partners with us and everything else, it's on our shoulders. And we don't mind that. That's what we're about. Great. I wanted to unpack something that you mentioned there about your partners and we talked a little bit about Emmett Capital a little bit earlier, but you guys want to talk about that or you want to? Absolutely. Um, I'll let Sam go deeper into Emmett Capital because he sort of maintains that relationship very closely and uh, really killing it on it. They've been a, a true partner in every sense. You know, as Sam said, we're trying to do this really holistically. So what are those services the students need? We recently into, entered into a partnership with Block Co. And, and what that is, is really um, modular housing. That's something we're really looking at because I think that um, Fisk University recently received a federal grant uh, along with some other, other funding. So they're building like a, an entirely new student housing complex. But as you can imagine, it's going to take years and the need is now. So what they did do, they went with modular housing for the time being. And it looks like quite a few other places are doing this as well, too. So this may be short term future of student housing. It could be long term. Don't know. But we're talking about block co. We had a really great conversation with them. We had a look at some of their work. And I'll tell you what, you think you're in downtown Manhattan and some of these things that they're building, frankly. So we're going to find out, you know, how can we really partner with them maybe on a short or long term basis? And most recently we started we had a conversation with College Boxes. Now, fascinating story. They're a division of U-Haul. If you think of U-Haul, it's all about transporting goods. Basically, what College Boxes does is they work with university students to basically move all of their furniture and equipment from point A being home to point B being school and from point B being school to point A being home. So if you think about it, if you're a student, you sort of set this up, give them a call, you know, make the payment and it's completely affordable. When they told us the cost, I was just, you know, shocked. Sam and I are both saying that, you know what, this is going to be a great partnership or collaboration. Once we work out the details, we're still talking through, you know, you've got lawyers to talk to like Chris, Chris knows how that is. But what we would like to see again is that we offer, you know, it's a holistic offering. Not only do we have students that we're housing, but we actually have our partners that can you know, transport their goods to the apartment, also store them. Let's say they're leaving, you know, for three months or so. It may not make sense to take it all the way back from, let's say, Southern University to upstate Michigan. They also have a service where they can actually store their goods uh, at, a, at a local U-Haul site. So what they're doing now is really incredible. It's going to be a great collaboration. We had a really great conversation with um, two of their leaders that are focused on this, and we're excited about it. I feel a day late, a dollar short when it comes to college boxes because I swear that was an idea I had 10 years ago because I was like, why can we not do this for college students like pods? Because we had moved and that was just the most simple way to do it, even though we weren't moving very far. And my immediate thought was, there's a way to do this for college students so you don't have to weigh down the, you know, mom station wagon or whatever <laughs> and, and all this stuff back and forth because and mom and dad are all about that freshman year taking you to school right but bringing that's you that you're on your own yeah it's a one-time slip <laughs> one time you know uh well someone must have hurt you because they're doing a great job and one thing i'll add about uh 
our partners uh, like Emmet and College Boxes, hey, they share our mission. So they offer their services. Emmet is an investment management firm. College Boxes, hey, Division of U-Haul, they transport. But guess what? They also believe in giving back. Emmet, they actually finance our first deal. And they actually stood with us and said, hey, look, we are in it with you for the long haul. We want to keep working with you. We want to keep acquiring pro- uh, properties with you, doing projects and giving back specifically to HBCUs. They have a commitment to HBCUs. They want, it's part of their ESG, it's part of their, their makeup. So uh, they're our long-term, our flagship partner. So uh, they're with us in the beginning and they'll be with us to however long our, our nonprofit lasts, which is hopefully in perpetuity. College boxes, same thing. They have told us, hey, it's really not about trying to make money with this venture, this endeavor. It's about giving back to HBCUs. They have a website that they're, a webpage they're dedicating to HBCUs. They have storage facilities at most HBCUs. They have a strong presence. So it was a natural matchup, great synergy when we linked up with them. So uh, block company, same thing. That's a black owned business and they do modular housing. They have a commitment to help colleges, HBCUs, actually anybody who needs something quick, something temporary, or even something permanent. So we believe in partnering with like-minded people. That's why we have these allies and we're looking for more. Now, the the project at Fisk that, that you were mentioning earlier, that's the one with the, they use shipping containers. Right. Correct, correct? Yep. Correct. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And that, that's been something, I've seen it in Europe before. They did some really crazy stuff. <laughs> when I say crazy, I just mean like funky right. looking stuff. That I mean, if you looked at it from the across the road, you'd never know it was shipping containers. Right. But yeah, I did I did see the article on the one for the Fisk and, and kind of how they've laid that out and, and what's great about it is I think they may may have even labeled it bridge housing. It is a perfect situation so that maybe they've got the extra land but they don't want to necessarily develop housing right. those future plans that's where the stem buildings go right and so that yeah that's that's a fantastic idea and uh the inside of it looked better than some of these millionaire uh, rvs i've seen before so <laughs> that's the whole point i mean it's all about innovation and thinking out of the box i mean you know a lot of bigger universities they they don't have to necessarily think out of the box because they have some deep pocket somewhere there there's large economies of scale but i mean these hbcus you you have to think out of the box to really solve some of these problems and you heard sam and sean talk about partners i mean everybody from basically investment bankers to movers and the common denominator there is you know we are a nonprofit, and in order to get in our orbit you have to have that kind of intent that you want to have you know you want to help people you want to have a public purpose. I mean, legally, you have to have some kind of public purpose to really throw in with us. And I think it really shows the commitment of, of our allies, you know, that, you know, because this is a, a huge endeavor for us. I mean, you talk about in agreements here and there. I mean, you know, there are probably 25, 30 lawyers out there I haven't spoken to yet to kind of bring in to manage this, to the, the relationships, just so you can help a couple of kids. And they don't mind that because that's, a, that's an important thing. That's why you see, as I said, you know, the analogy would be municipal bonds. That's why you see bonds helping hospitals, bonds helping major university systems. It's because it's a public good. 
And, you know, that's why we can attract who we can. Is everything that you guys would approach, would it be financed with bond financing or is there regular debt out there that, that you guys could work with? We'll do it either, any which way it comes. I mean, our first property was done through bond financing, but uh, we're looking at regular finance. We'll look at regular debt financing. We like that because it's quicker. We think we can leverage it. And as a nonprofit, we have distinct advantages, you know, no matter what we do. So uh, we do look at both sides of the house. And we do also look at partnering not only with developers from the ground up, but also with current student housing property owners, because as a 501c3, their inherent advantage we have if we're titled to the property, but it's still their property. So that's yeah. something we want to mention before we end, end the podcast. That's one one little nugget we want to put out there, but I'll turn it over to Chris <laughs> and dig a little deeper. It depends on the institution. Some of them are chartered, you know, the, how they're chartered, how they were set up. I mean, you have private institutions I mean, in South Carolina, I think you've got South Carolina State, which is a public institution next to, uh, I think it's Claflin, which is private. So, you know, you have to, we have to look at that relationship and what the state does or does not want to do. The state might have an authority, a bond authority that might help these universities and some don't. So it really depends on what you're working with, but it's not a question of, of we're a nonprofit and we take donors. I mean, you can invest in a nonprofit. You can provide debt financing for a nonprofit's project. It's really about what the project's for and what the governance of the project's gonna look like afterward. And, you know, as a lender, as a funder, you get, you know, a twofer. You get to help out, you know, a 501c3. And at some point you get to cash out later, you know, in the project but you're, you're assisting in a public purpose and something that's a good thing, which is housing kids for their education who will go off and do something in their society and go off and maybe work for your company, your bank, your angel fund or whatever you got you know, that we're working with. So, you know, the fact that, that Sean and Sam set this up the way they did, I mean, they very easily could have just said we're a for-profit company. You know, we're out here, you know, we're almost like, you know, house flipping, except we're flipping dorms. You know, they could have just as easily done that. And that wouldn't have created the possibilities that we have now. And I don't, it wouldn't have really helped these universities at all. So, I mean, this is, this is a real kudos to them to think out of the box and, and, and approach it from this um, standpoint. And, and I'll say this too, Chris, I think that uh, we're, we would love to change the mindset of, institutional lending institutions, the normal ones. We love to tell them our story, uh, like the, the Walk on Dunlops, uh, the PGMs, the Newmark. We love to be able to say, hey, look, it's worth looking at us. It's worth taking us to like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac and telling the story because this is a project worth doing. So we're not only trying to do things better for college students, we're actually, it'd be great. Our greatest mission would be to kind of change the financing system where I think I told this story somewhere else before. It's sort of like the way the colleges do. And back in the day in colleges, SAT was everything. It was everything. Like they looked at that, they get you in school, it doesn't get you in school, SAT and grades. But they realized, hey, we're missing out on quality students because of that SAT score, because of we're only focused on grades. 
These students have a story to tell and they have valuable things to offer. So let's change the dynamic. Let's change the way we look at things. And we sort of like to do that in the student housing world, especially for nonprofits. We want to kind of change the dynamic and look at us in a different light so that we stand a better chance along with our for-profit uh, brothers and sisters. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so for the folks in, in our audience, you've got mostly kind of on-site managers. You've got regional managers with operating companies. We have some developers. We have some, you know, some investors. Let's first talk about that, you know, that on-campus or that off-campus property manager that, that's listening to this. Maybe they're at HBCU or, or maybe they are dealing with some of these type of issues with food insecurity and needing financial planning, education courses and things like that. Is Student Housing of America, is that someone that they can reach out to to get help with that for, for their specific community? Or is that specifically just for the communities that you guys take, a I guess, an ownership role in? No, I, I think to your point, Wes, is that, you know, we have one property that we own. We have another we're looking at acquiring, but it's we are a student housing of America. So that's all student housing. We, we do focus quite a bit on HBCUs, but, you know, as a nonprofit, our mission is students writ large with a special focus on HBCUs. So, again, the advantages of partnering up with us as a IRS recognized 501c3 they're huge. They're huge. Uh, and there are many ways we can structure that. Chris, I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV, but Chris knows the ins and outs. And um, and also, I think, and I'm going to go back and mention this because we work with each other, as Sam said earlier, not just here, but some other ventures as well, too. And we get along, we laugh, we argue, we genuinely like each other because we trust each other. You know, I know if, if something happened to me, I can call either one of these guys and they'll be right there. They may be a little late, but they'll tell me that at least. But um, I say that because that integrity is important. You know, you can get involved with a lot of uh, nonprofits and their nonprofit just on paper. Next thing you know, you've got, you know, IRS agents knocking down your door. We come from, Chris worked for the Department of Justice. Sam was a federal agent. You know, I have a government background. So we know anything and everything that approaches a line, we don't even bother with it. Any organization or entity, they can work with us and know that they're working with the best um, in the industry. And I say that selfishly and I guess without, you know, objectivity, but that's what we're here for. We are in a man, you know, property management business as well. But the thing is, because we're a nonprofit and because we also have integrity, you can also contract with us, you know, kind of a la carte if you need to. And we're not going to use the fact that we have management company experience or management company um, arm to kind of strong arm you, you know, because there are, there are nonprofits that do that. You know, well, can you uh, partner with us for um, student mental health? Sure. And then all of a sudden they come in and, and they start trying to take over everything else. I mean, we don't do that kind of stuff. We're, not, we're a nonprofit. We are there, you know, as Sean said, it's student housing writ large. If you need us for something specific, we'll come in for something specific. If you're in the university and say, look, you got to take this over. You got to do this. We will do that too. You know, but we're not here to strong arm anybody. We're here to lend our expertise to help these kids. So, I mean, I just wanted to make that clear because, you know, you, I, I know, West, you've got people in the audience who do have, you know, distinct management companies for some of these university properties. And we're not out, we're not an octopus, you know, with, with tentacles trying to strangle people. We're out here to help kids and, and, you know, one school at a time. 
So that's what, you know, I hope the people in your audience understand that part. Yeah. So let's talk about the developers that are, that are in the audience because, I, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with them over the past, call it 18 months. And we've had that discussion about HBCUs, you know, the, about enrollment increasing and the housing needs because a lot of these, a lot of these schools are kind of, you know, in remote areas, they were land grant schools and there's maybe not a lot of housing around and they tend to, they want to get involved with doing something at an HBCU, but there's typically some other things that are, and right now the biggest thing being financing and where interest rates are at right now. Well, if there's a developer that says, Hey, I know of this perfect opportunity at this specific HBCU, but financing just doesn't make sense right now because of interest rates. What's kind of the process that they would go with you guys of saying, okay, let's evaluate this together and see if there's a potential partnership? Well, you know, there are a couple of things. I think that when you're looking at that type of a project uh, near an HBCU, you're absolutely right. I think it's it's actually pretty much an untapped market, if you want to know the truth. There are federal funds, quite a bit of federal funds, local funds that are available that actually can go into the project as well, too. Again, if they come to us, you know, we've been through it. We know how this works. If they partner with us, that financing that they're working with, guess what? Now you get into a, a tax exempt status where that actually increases the amount that they can finance, if you think about it. So I think, you know, what they'll want to look at is it's atypical from probably some of the greater or larger deals that they're doing, but the benefits that come along with them, they're absolutely worth the time. And I'll add this also, and then I'll, you know, let Sam and Chris uh, add in anything they have, but you have a captive audience. Now, the reality of HBCUs, the majority of students going to HBCUs are on financial aid. Part of their financial aid is sort of set aside for their housing. So you're working with the HBCU hand in hand to provide housing they will let you know ahead, hey, listen, we, we're probably going to have too much capacity for you. We'll fill you up. We have to go look somewhere else or, you know, this semester might be low. So it takes a lot of the uncertainty out of it, which every business, no matter what you're in, you want to eliminate as much uncertainty as you can. So the benefits from where we stand absolutely outweigh any of the risk and also quite a bit of the uncertainty as well, too. And we have allies that we have vetted also and you know and you know our capital partner alone helps bring the gravitas that a lender or a developer might need to see these these different people behind the deal you know and you know we also as Sean said work with the school so if there's somebody at the in the administration who maybe we don't think should be the proper face to the developer it might be somebody who's who's an educator and his expertise is in physics, not in dealing with developers. We can line up the right team at the university in their administration to meet with the developers as well. So we're almost like, a, you know, like an agent and a project manager ahead of time as well. Uh, if, if we're talking about a developer and even a, a major lender for the university as well, I mean, we help bring that gravitas, I think, because a lot of this is based on that. I'm not wearing a Black Panther hat today, but, you know, a lot of it, you know, Wes, is certain people get the benefit of largesse from developers and lenders and investors because they just have this gravitas. I mean, a lot of it might be based on race. I mean, some people might not think 
some people are sophisticated enough for us to deal with. And to be very honest with you, we, I think we try to, to remove that as an excuse because we have the sophistication yeah. and our allies and our capital partners have the, the sophistication to bring you know, the, these people to bear. So a developer or a financer or somebody you would say, okay, well, you got a great team here. You know, so they don't have the excuse of saying, oh, I don't know, they seem a little naive. Well, you know, we're, that's not us. So, you know, that's what we bring to the table, I think, for some of the developers, you know, who might be listening. To circle back to the financial side of things as a recap, with us, for a developer, they partner with us. Hey, no property taxes. Refinancing costs are greatly reduced. And they have access to, as Sean pointed out, to other reservoirs of money through federal, state, and local programs. So we, we can put a lot on the table for them if they choose. And they're doing the right thing, as Chris said, so... Well, great. Well, you know, I'm going to put all your contact information in the show notes, obviously. And Sean, you've prepared a a great slide today that we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But just really quick, what's kind of the best way for any of these folks that want to get in touch with you? What's the best way for that? And then also, if they just want to support you guys, you know, with donations or whatever, give us a little bit of information on the best way to contact you. The easiest is through our website, studenthousingofamerica.org. It has all of our contact information on there. There, We do have a questions or comments section that comes through. We check that hourly pretty much. And also, we have a donation tab there as well, too. We meet them where they are. If they want to do that donation by check, fine. If they want to do it by credit card, fine, whatever. We have all our contact information out there. And outside of that, it's samuel.wiggins at studenthousingofamerica.org. Sean.wiggins at studenthousingofamerica.org and Chris.chambers at studenthousingofamerica.org. We're out there. We're pretty easy to reach and we're happy to talk to anyone about partnership. We're happy to talk to anyone about any ideas that they may have because that's one thing we mentioned early on, Wes, is that we're constantly thinking what else. And I think that, you know, we, ha- we do have an innovative spirit. There's a lot to be done. And on that note, too, we want to thank you for what you do because I think that I don't know of anyone else doing what you do. You know, I've been listening to your show recently and, you know, you're covering all the things that need to be covered in student housing. And thank you for that, because, you know, we need more of this, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, it's been great to to talk with you guys. And I I could probably sit down and talk for another hour, but we've got some (laughs) limits. (laughs) Um, I appreciate it so much. Samuel, thanks for, for being a part of the recent shop talk earlier this month as well. And we will uh, definitely make sure that if anybody's got any questions either on HBCUs or, you know, through this, you know, nonprofit process of getting deals done, um, we're going to send them to you. Fantastic. Thank you, you, Wes. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, again, thanks to Samuel and Sean and Christopher for that interview and, and the time that they've given. Obviously, it's about you know promoting their nonprofit and, and they're happy to do it. But at the same time, they're busy guys. I mean, this isn't their nine to five. You know? <laughs> We're running a whole other yes. company outside of that. And so really appreciate their time with that. Terrence, thanks so much for spending your time as well. I know you're out traveling right now and <laughs> probably need to be on the FaceTime with your kids. But thanks so much for that. I think everybody's a little bit better for it. 
Just to remind everybody, we've got Shop Talk that's coming up March 9th. So make sure that you check that out. That is the Student Housing Industries monthly webinar here in the United States. And yes, I know some folks in some other countries have asked me if we'll do the same for their country. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. We'll see. I need somebody in those countries to help out because I don't know that I can manage it all. But anyway, Terrence, you've joined the Shop Talk before, haven't you? Yes, I have. I have. I mean, I'm actually a fan, you know, and just the content that you put out, it's just, I look forward to every Shop Talk that comes out. I find that I learn something different listening to the different perspectives from our colleagues in the industry, um, like whether it be for, you know, 20 years or five years, everybody looks at it differently. Yeah. So I'm a fan. Well, great. Well, I appreciate it again. Thanks. And we'll talk to you soon. All right.